Welcome to Bottled Petrichor, a podcast dedicated to discussing key topics in Islamic history and thought. In addition to a short lecture at the start of most episodes, we ask our guest experts questions submitted by listeners and allow them to share their thoughts in a safe environment. Please visit our Twitter page for feedback and question submission forms. Thank you, and I hope you enjoy. So, Sheikh Amr, there were several follow-up questions that I had, and so let me just begin again with some more. Before Islamic law was codified, what was the day-to-day life of new converts and regular Muslims during that time period? Yeah, so before Islamic law was codified, um, the transmission of Islamic teachings was taking place in a different way. And that was basically from person to person, from generation to generation. So more than uh, reading and writing, it was a question of learning with, with living human beings. That was the way of the Prophet himself, even though he had a revelation with him, but the revelation was being revealed in bits and pieces. And so the the key learning mechanism for the Sahaba during his own lifetime was that of keeping company with the Prophet, learning from his daily practice, and learning from him uh, person to person. So it was the same approach adopted in the early period. Um, Islamic law was transmitted from the Sahaba to the the, uh, successors of the successors, the successors of the successors. The first two generations are like this. Towards the end of the first two generations, what we find is that Islamic law begins to be codified and uh, writings begin to emerge in the sense of uh, either detailed rulings or uh, collections of hadith and so on. But even then, the primary method for transmission of Islamic law has been from person to person. So the... Uh, so- the average person um, uh, who became Muslim, and you know, he needed to know uh, the the, ob- the, oblig- the obligatory aspects of prayer or of ritual purification. He'd learn that from, I guess, his local mosque or yes, he would go to somebody that he trusted, and he would go and study with that person. Study in the sense of sitting down with him and learning from him. Now, whether that person used the written text as a teaching aid or not, that depends on the person. But the key aspect was that there was a teacher and a student. Okay. And that aspect persists until today. The only difference is that now the teaching aids have increased in both, uh, have basically increased in number. That's what has happened. Okay. Um, and, and the actual teaching aids also changed from time to time. So what was used during the time of, let's say, Imam Abu Hanifa or during the time of the students was a different body of texts. And what we're using today is a different body of texts. But texts were always teaching aids. They were not the primary means of transmission of Islamic law. The primary means was the human Understood. Historically, how did courts go about investigating crime and giving punishment? Was capital punishment common? Uh, and did it depend on your particular madhab or the local madhab of the area you just happened to be in when you committed the crime? So this is basically a historical question, right? What exactly happened in the past? That's what the question is. So the, the response to that is what we have is bits and pieces of information. We don't have detailed information. Uh, the best documented uh, period of Islamic history is the Ottoman period. And even the Ottoman archives, especially their core documents, have not been fully uh, examined yet. So even with the, with the amount of research coming out from the universities and, and uh, from Ottomanists, we still don't have enough information. But from the limited information we do have, it, it seems there was always a mix. <clears throat> In some cases, you would have 
the plaintiff coming to the judge with some evidence. In other cases, the judge is basically asking the defendant and the defendant uh, acknowledges his crimes or whatever in the court. In other cases, the court would, would appoint somebody to investigate the matter. So the, the interesting thing about Islamic legal system was that the judge was proactive. Uh, in America, what we find today is that the judge is basically the moderator of the courtroom, right? It's the lawyers on both sides. They are the ones doing all the all the work. And in, in case of uh, a case between the, uh, the defendant and the state, it's the police that does the job for the prosecutor, and then the prosecutor brings the case to the court. So in, in the American legal system, the judges often take a backseat. They are there as the, the respective figure, but in the end, they're basically moderators. In the Islamic legal system, the judge was very proactive. What that meant was that the judge would also uh, carry out investigations. The judge was basically interested in finding the truth and finding uh, and deciding between the two parties and determining who is right and who is wrong. So he would investigate from the in two individuals. He would appoint people who would go and look into the matter and so on and so forth. And one of the, the key aspects of that was that because the judge was so proactive, the judge was also active in uh, suggesting and many times executing cases of reconciliation. That the judge would find ways of bringing the two parties together in a way that they could actually reconcile. So in that sense, um, it's, it's very different from what we have today. But at the same time, none of that is like written in stone. So it is possible theoretically that uh, instead of the investigating agency being under the judge, it becomes an independent investigating agency, which happens in the case of the police, right? That's what the police does. It happens independently. Uh, but the key difference still remains that in the modern legal system, the lawyers are loyal to their client. Whether it's the prosecutor who basically uh, pushes the for convictions and uh, the defendant, his lawyer is basically loyal to the defendant. In the Islamic legal system, nobody is loyal to anyone except to the truth. That's the key thing. The defendant might be loyal to himself, the plaintiff might be loyal to himself, but the legal system, that is to say the judge and all of his appointees, they are interested in the truth. They don't care whether who you are, where you come from. It's not about the money, it's not about the client, it's about the truth. That's that's a huge difference between the modern legal system and the common legal system. And this judge is appointed by? So judges are appointed by the, uh, the political authorities, so that comes from the top, from the Khalifa downwards. Okay, and and then again, of course, it varies from empire to empire. In each empire, there was a somewhat different system, but in general, it's top down. <clears throat> and is a judge? Judges are not elected. They're not elected. That, that's a very American system of judges being elected. Okay, and is a judge yeah. operating in the methodological framework of his school, or uh, on what basis is he giving the ruling? So in the early period, from what we have uh, in terms of historical documents, it's not clear that judges were operating under madhabs. Uh, the issue of uh, adhering to a particular madhab that emerged in the Ayyubid Mamluk period, which is basically from the uh, 12th century onwards, that the, the Ayyubid Empire, they started insisting on this, that a judge must adhere to a particular madhab. In the case of Mamluks, they actually established uh, four uh, different kinds of types of courts. For each mother, there was a different court. Uh, and then with the Hanafis, they insisted, with the Ottomans, sorry, they insisted on the Hanafi mother as being the supreme law of the land. So in that sense, depending on the particular empire that we're looking at, they would have a particular preference for a madhab. Or in the case of Mamluks, they actually had all four madhabs, except that the chief judge would almost always come from the Shafi school. So they had that. 
the key question there is what would happen in case of conflict? Uh, that if a ruling was given by one judge on the basis of his madhhab, uh, could there be a conflict if the same question, a case was taken to a different court? That would be an interesting question. I'm not sure how that played out, uh, but that would be interesting to look at. Though. Okay. And kind of moving on, the Quran legislates punish certain punishments for certain crimes. Right. But oftentimes those crimes are very, very difficult to prove. Some might say even impossible, according right. to the later developed um, legal system. So mm -hmm. how exactly were these crimes studied in the time of the Prophet? Um, and how were they, I guess, investigated later on? And specific crimes I'm referring to like adultery and things of that nature, right. which have very strict kind of requirements. I think the most important one here is adultery because uh, every other crime, uh, proving it is not that difficult. Murder, proving murder is not that difficult. Proving theft is not that difficult. Proving drinking is not that difficult. Proving bandit your highway or robbery is not that difficult. The most difficult thing is the one of uh, about adultery because it requires four witnesses to actually see the act of penetration. So with respect to adultery, uh, what we find among the fuqaha is that they describe it as a deterrent. And all the punishments that we have so far they seem to be uh, as a result of uh, admission. That is to say, the person accused uh, either is he's, either that person is accused of the crime, and then that person uh, makes an admission in court, or the person himself or herself goes to the prophet and makes that admission. So the examples that we have from the life of the prophet are like Maiz, Aslami, and others. They are the ones who themselves went to the prophet and made an admission before him four times, and because the prophet was the chief judge of the time. So making admission before him, that was basically uh, uh, admission in court. So because of that, the, the punishments were carried out. But later on, we don't find uh, that many punishments carried out for adultery, uh, not in, in the form of had. And again, we have to be careful that the two different terms, one is had, the other is azir. Had is the punishment that is mandated by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, or that is understood to be uh, divinely revealed, either through the Quran or through the sunnah. So the had for adultery is stoning to death, and the had for fornication is hundred lashes, right? And I'm differentiating between the two by virtue of whether the participants are married or not. That's had. The azir is a discretionary punishment, and that is on the, uh, the prerogative of the judge. So, for example, if somebody is accused of fornication or adultery or, or sins of that sort, and the matter is taken to the judge, and there are no four witnesses, so the judge cannot carry out a had. But the judge has enough evidence to be convinced that this person is guilty of the crime. It's just that the evidence is not strong enough. So in that case, the judge can mete out a punishment that is lower than that of the had as a form of discretionary punishment. So, so that can happen. And it seems that there are evidences of that. But again, it becomes now a historical question. How often was it carried out? Uh, based upon the sources we have, we know that it was carried out. We know that it was not carried out a lot, especially the had for adultery. Uh, but the ta'zir for adultery, it, it happened a bit more. Uh, these things did happen. Yeah. And so, if you're if you're accused of a crime and mm -hmm. you're found guilty, and a punishment takes place, but later on you're found to be not guilty, what happens in that case? Does the does the well, there's a mechanism. Yes, scholars have figured out a mechanism to sort of compensate for the rights that have been violated. Uh, and again, it will depend on the particular situation. Uh, on the particular uh, crime that was supposed to be committed, the particular punishment that was carried out. 
So theoretically, all kinds of things are possible in that. Uh, what, what we have in today's system is that often the, uh, the legal system will be sued for some amount of money. Actually, the, the, the agency that, that prosecuted them. So, for example, if the city prosecutors did that, then maybe the city would be sued. Or if the state prosecutors did that, the state would be sued, something like that, right? So those things could potentially be uh, Sharia compliant. They could potentially be Sharia compliant. Hmm. Okay. Um, this is next a um, kind of a, a cluster of related questions. What does haram makruh mean practically? Um, well, so it depends. Like uh, in the case of the non-Hanafi schools, uh, haram and makruh are very different. Haram is something which is forbidden and makruh is something which is disliked. So haram means if you do it, you get a sin. Makruh means if you do it, you don't get a sin, but it is still better if you don't do it. That is to say, if you don't do it, then you get a reward. So it's, it's kind of straightforward when it comes to the non-Hanafis. In the case of Hanafis, they differentiate between two types of makruh. So on the one hand, there's makruh tamzihi and there's makruh tahrimi. Makruh tahrimi is basically the same as haram, uh, but the label is different because the strength of the evidence is different. That is to say, practically, haram and makruh tahrimi are the same thing. Okay. Makruh tamzihi is like the makruh of other schools which is something that if you do it, you don't get a sin, but if you don't do it, you get a reward. So, I mean, practically speaking, I mean, are these approximations of what we think God likes or dislikes, or is this undoubtedly what he dislikes? I mean, what does it mean for something to be yeah. disliked? I mean, obviously we don't know the mind of God. So what does that mean right, exactly? Right. I mean, so the, when we look at Sharia, what we have is the two main parts of Sharia, right? One part of Sharia is something where we are certain this is what God wants from us, right? Those are the qat'iyat or the things that are definitively known to be the requirements of Sharia. That is to say, those are the definitively known to be the commands of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So, for example, Allah says you pray. Allah says you give zakah. He says you fast. These are definitively known to be the commands of, of God. He also tells us not to commit murder. He also tells us not to commit fornication or adultery not to commit theft. These are again known definitively as the commands of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So with these, that's one part. The other part, which is the larger part of Sharia, is the part which is composed of educated guesses of ulama. That is to say, ulama have done their best to guess what God's command would be in these cases. And because those are guesses, because we do not definitively know what Allah wants from us, therefore, they are labeled differently. They're called probabilistic uh, knowledge, not definitive knowledge. And that is why, in the case of, especially in the case of Hanafis, they also use different terms. So the distinction between haram and makutarimi is there because the Hanafis feel that the evidence is definitive enough for it to be called haram in one case. But in the other case, the evidence is not definitive enough. So therefore, they will call it makutarimi instead of haram. So what scholars are basically doing is they are acknowledging their subjectivity. And based upon that, they are differentiating between the types of commands that are in the Sharia. Okay, but Does even that make sense? yeah, even that stuff that is known to be you know absolutely impermissible. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? I mean, even that requires some type of interpretation. Um, not really, not really. I mean, so once we know something is definitively haram or forbidden, then there's no further interpretation. Like for example, we know that fornication is haram. That's it. There's nothing else to it. But is is the definition of fornication the same throughout? Or for example, murder, is it is it sometimes justified under certain conditions and not like what does it mean? Like of course the act itself is impermissible, but later on 
are these acts qualified or you know are they do people have different justifications yeah, so, for them I mean, so even with, even with respect to murder there are different types of murder right there's premeditated murder there's murder by accident and so on right and even then within murder by accident there are other there are different types within it you for example you shoot at a you will go hunting in, in the forest or something and you kill somebody by mistake right <clears throat> you were aiming at an animal but you end up shooting some some human being and you kill that person or there's a case of <clears throat> the foca often give example of a person like a, a really fat person and he falls on somebody <laughs> right and kills him by mistake because of that so for example let's say a person is sleeping on the bed and somebody else is sleeping uh, on the floor right and the person sleeping on the bed is a big fat person and the big fat person rolls over and sleep and he falls on that person on the floor and the person on the floor dies right that's a form of murder by accident it was not premeditated it was an accident so the fuqaha they they differentiate between those premeditated murder versus uh, murder by accident <clears throat> so when we say something is definitively pro prohibited those are those are only one category out of those so murder in its all its forms is prohibited unless it is justified but the unjustified murder will also have different categories and depending on those categories the punishments will vary right okay so if there's premeditated murder that will require that means the, uh, the family of the victim now has the right to demand this person's death uh, in the case of murder by accident the family of the victim may not demand this person's death but will be uh, eligible to receive indemnity or something of that sort right so, so so there are differences there with respect to fornication again you could have multiple cases uh, you could have a case of premeditated fornication the person knows that so and so is not uh, halal for them, and they still go ahead and have uh, intercourse with them. That's fornication, plain and simple. But you can have cases of uh, of doubt. For example, in the pre-modern days, when uh, people used to possess slaves, you could have a case of a slave girl owned by one's father, and uh, this this boy thinks that because the the everything that my father has is also mine, so therefore I also have the right to have sex with the uh, the slave girl. That is, the jurist will describe that as a case of fornication because of doubt. And in that case, the hal will not be applied, right? <coughs> so these the, these kind of detailed rulings are, are present in Islamic law. The, the, the jurists have taken all of these contingencies into account. Okay, and kind of on, on that same, um, same note, <coughs> does God take into consideration the context of things that are, are impermissible? Or are all things that are impermissible absolutely impermissible for all times? I mean, have scholars ever uplifted what, like, you know, the haramness of something is? Um, yeah, yeah. So, so there, there are bit, there are different aspects to this question. One is, does God know the context of everything? Of course, God knows the context even better than us, right? And at the end of the day, whether the court system in this world declares you to be guilty or not, the final judge is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So that's one part. That's a given. The other part is the question of if something is haram, can it also become halal? Right? That's the question. Yeah. And does it become halal because the scholars say it's halal or does it become halal because Allah says it's halal? Right? So in some cases, we have Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala telling us that it is permitted for you. So for example, in the case of somebody suffering from extreme hunger, even in the Quran, there's a verse talking about that, right? That if somebody suffering from extreme hunger, they are allowed to consume haram uh, so that they can uh, maintain their life as long as they are not desiring and they're not uh, consuming in excess, right? 
there's a Quranic verse to that effect. And not just one, there are multiple verses. And I think it's Surah Baqarah, Ayah 173. So, so the number of verses in the Quran that talk about that, that something might be haram in itself, and yet it becomes permissible within certain limitations for particular type of persons. And based upon this idea, which is in the Quran, the fuqaha, the jurists, have derived a number of other kinds of situations where something which may be haram in itself might be permissible uh, within certain limitations, depending on that particular context. So yeah, there are detailed discussions on that. There are detailed, extensive discussions on that. And uh, because those things are derived from the Quran, they are not God's speech themselves. So therefore, there's a lot of uh, disagreements there as well. So one set of scholars might consider one uh, situation to be uh, to, to be reaching the threshold for the invocation of uh, of, of the conversion of haram into halal, for others that might not be uh, reaching that threshold. So okay. There's a lot of disagreement there. Okay, and historically, has there ever been something that a lot of people agreed was absolutely impermissible, and later on, scholars kind of decided that, hey, you know, this should be permissible? Or Actually, um, it's the other way around. So, for example, in the case of the Hanafi school, for a long time, the Hanafis insisted that Nabi of Tamr, uh, which is basically a drink made from dates before it becomes wine, but the Hanafis, they considered that to be permissible for many, for a long time. And there, and the Hanafis were notorious for that. That is to say, a lot of the non-Hanafis considered Hanafis to be wrong in saying that. And the Hanafis were blasted in, in sermons and in books and so on. And that's one of the reasons why the Hanafis had a very bad reputation uh, in the early period. And there are also historical accounts of Hanafis being uh, carried from uh, dinner parties or whatever because they were uh, inebriated, right? <laughs> so, so in the early period, you have this situation where the Hanafis are tolerating something, and everybody else is saying, "Well, this is haram. How can you say that it, this is halal?" And then in the later period, what we find is the Hanafis have basically joined the majority group, and they're saying, "Yes, we also now declare it to be haram." So we have an example of that. Um, the other way around, which you asked about, of something being haram and then becoming halal. Um, I wouldn't say it's haram to halal, it's more a question of something that was declared to be impermissible and then was called permissible. And notice the switch in terms. I'm not calling it haram, rather I'm going from impermissible to permissible. The difference here is haram is something which is definitively known to be haram, right? So, so those things are different. I'm talking about things that Olama said were impermissible. That is to say, they did not say that we definitively know it's impermissible, but we are calling it impermissible, right? So in the uh, in the early period when uh, loudspeakers were introduced into uh, the Muslim world, so South Asian ulama, many of them uh, were not okay with loudspeakers because there was a whole debate about whether the sound coming out of the loudspeaker is the actual sound of the imam or is it something else, right? So because of that, there was a question of whether the, the muqtadis, the followers in prayer, are actually following the imam or are they following some artificial sound? So once that matter was resolved, the loudspeakers were declared to be permissible. And now you find every uh, alim, molbi, in the masjid basically using loudspeakers, uh, maybe even excessively, right? So that's one example there. You also have a case of uh, photography and pictures. And for the longest time, what we have is that the uh, the Islamic civilization on the whole basically does not engage in uh, making uh, images of animate objects on the whole. There are people who do it. But on the whole, Islamic civilization doesn't do it, especially the practicing Muslims, they don't do it, the ulama do not condone it. And yet when photography is introduced into the Muslim world, uh, the Muslim world basically splits into two major camps. One camp says photography is not the same as 
drawing pictures, therefore photography is okay. The other camp says, which is the South Asian Hanafis, they say no, photography is the same as drawing pictures with your hand, and so therefore photography is not okay. But then in recent years, uh, with the rise of uh, internet, with the rise of smartphones, what we find today is that in practice, uh, even the majority of South Asian ulama are basically uh, okay with, uh, with digital images. So that's where there has been a shift. Now what is, what is interesting here is, and, it, and this is something that needs to be looked into and researched, whether the ulama who are now actively watching videos and, and looking at these pictures, are they also declaring them to be permissible? Or is it a case of disconnect between what their fatwa is and what their practice is? So that's something that needs to be looked into. But on the whole, there, there has been a huge switch. I mean, at the level of the Islamic civilization, there, there has been a huge switch from considering uh, pictures of animate objects to be impermissible to a situation where pictures of, of animate objects in the form of digital images or in the form of printed pictures has become really widespread across the Muslim world. Uh, even by Olam. Okay. So, kind of to conclude this cluster of questions, what is the relationship then between Islamic law and salvation? Right, right. So actually, this question goes back to the question you asked last time about uh, what is Islamic law given to the world, right? Islamic law is basically the means through which you please God. That's the idea. Islamic law, uh, its biggest gift to Islamic, to the world civilization is giving humanity a means to please God, to connect with God. And it's the same thing with the, the question of salvation. That salvation is predicated on God's pleasure. And God's pleasure is, uh, is achieved by us sincerely adhering to his commands and staying away from his prohibitions. And so Islamic law then becomes the means through which we know what God's commands are and what his prohibitions are. Of course, with the details that some of those commands and prohibitions are known definitively and some of those are known through probabilistic knowledge, but they are the best we have in knowing what God wants from us. And so in that sense, Islamic law is the primary means through which we seek God's faith. Okay, and I think that some other questions might circle back to this, but let's move on and discuss some aspects of the Quran. How much of the Qur'an is legislated? How much of the rulings are kept keeping in mind the Arab culture of the 7th century? How do we consider this when deriving law? Well, so uh, when it comes to the Qur'an, it has uh, a little over 6,000 verses, right? Out of those, about 500, between 350 to 500, uh, different ulama have identified different numbers, but between 350 to 500 verses are considered to be legal verses. And here we're using legal in the in the strict legal sense. Uh, that is to say, this does not include theology, does not include spirituality. So only those verses with that pertain to outward actions, those are about 350 to 500 verses of the Quran. So as you can see, they are a minority in the Quran, right? <coughs> if the total number is a little over 6,000, this is less than that. Now, the other part of the question, which has to do with uh, the Arab culture of the seventh century, it's, it's kind of tricky. <clears throat> so on the one hand, uh, again, it goes back to the question of constants and variables. Uh, many of these verses that are defined as legal verses pertain to worships. They're basically constants, right? Some of them pertain to uh, social relations, especially marriage and divorce. And it is those aspects of marriage and divorce that are, again, pretty much constant. 
Some of them pertain to uh, Islamic economic rulings. But again, it's those Islamic economic rulings that are constants. That is prohibition of riba. So in that sense, I would say a lot of the legal verses in the Quran are basically constants. But some of them can easily be seen as uh, variable and dependent on the Arab culture. So <clears throat> a case would be the, the all of the verses pertaining to slavery, right? Whether you're allowed to have a slave girl or not, whether you should uh, marry a slave girl of who's Muslim and non-Muslim and so on and so forth. In today's world, that has become irrelevant, right? We don't have slaves anymore. All the Muslim countries in the world have signed uh, those conventions that have banned slavery throughout the world. So basically, those verses are irrelevant to us today. Uh, so in that sense, you could say those are variables that are basically no longer apply. The other question, which is that of, uh, which can be tricky, is the question of riba. So some people try to contextualize that by saying that riba is uh, limited to certain forms of riba that were prevalent at the time of the, uh, the Quran was revealed. But then again, uh, we have to keep in mind the Quran is only one form of revelation. But the Sunnis, the Sunnah of the Prophet, is another part of the revelation. And so when you bring the Sunnah with the Quran, then things change completely. And the arguments of contextualizing things, it sort of becomes uh, difficult to do that because the Sunnah gives you a much more comprehensive view. With respect to the Sunnah, the question arises again. Uh, can we contextualize the Sunnah only to the 7th century? Or do we uh, take it to be something which is uh, a model until the end of times. So the, the bulk of the Sunni tradition has basically held the opinion that the Sunnah is the model for the rest of, for all of, uh, for all times to come. And so in that sense, the Sunnah has to be followed. But there's a difference between following Sunnah to the letter and following Sunnah in spirit. <clears throat> and that's where the jurists then begin to disagree with one another. And again, it depends on the particular case, particular issue. What do we do in this particular case? So in, in general, like I said, the Sunnah is seen as a model, um, but the particular issue will determine how that model is enacted in today's world. Okay, and in specific certain discussions in the Quran and Sunnah about things like inheritance and how the type right. of inheritance was kind of dependent on the society to, to which right. you know, right. the Quran is revealed. Now societies right. changed, you know, the role of right. men and women in society is different now than it was before. So right. how do we address that? So that's that's an issue that has, again, divided ulama in today's world. Well, not so much ulama, but ulama and intellectuals. So there are modern intellectuals among Muslims who basically are saying we have to reimagine the whole, uh, the whole idea of how societies could be organized because society is no longer uh, organized the way it was organized between one period. So they are basically calling for reimagining the, the rules pertaining to not just inheritance, but also the questions of uh, men and women and, and their relationship in marriage and who gets to be responsible for what. So there's, there's a vigorous debate on the subject. But as far as ulama are concerned, as far as I know, they have basically uh, been hesitant to tamper with the Quran in the sense of saying that we will also make these things into variables. So they will come up with other solutions to take care of the question of inheritance. Because one, so one, one of the, yeah, we'll have to go into a bit of detail. So when it comes to inheritance, one of the, uh, the underlying assumptions is that the man is the breadwinner in each family, right? And because man is the breadwinner in each family, so therefore 
the women do not need to receive the same amount of inheritance as men do because men have responsibilities women don't uh, and the problem is that well in today's world women are also earning a living but again it goes back to the question okay women are, are also breadwinners in, in today's world but are they required to be breadwinners that's the question right so if you want to change that part of it and say well uh, women should be getting equal inheritance as men then you're also basically suggesting that women should also be required to be breadwinners and i think that's where a lot of the modern intellectuals and feminists will basically they'll be forced to take a pause like we want the inheritance but we don't want women to be required to be breadwinners right so so because of these issues most ulama have basically resisted these they, they said no the, the quran says inheritance is to be divided this way and we will stick to it because the quran is the constant <clears throat> But I mean, for me personally, theoretically, I do see the possibility. I do understand the the objection. It's just that changing uh, the application of the Quran is such a huge task that I think it is. If it, if and when it does happen, it has to be done at the level of the highest uh, scholarship. The average scholar should not be pontificating on this. Uh, this the senior most scholars, if they get together and they decide on the basis of their study of uh, of society today, and uh, on the basis of their knowledge of Islamic law and its philosophy if they decide on it that would make sense but the average person i don't think we none of us is qualified enough to to make that change does that make sense yeah now moving on there were different areas of specialization there is a specialization in quran hadith arabic grammar and so on scholars relied on other sciences to help them in their own now, right. keeping this in mind, one, mm -hmm. what is taqlid in general? And two, mm -hmm. was there taqlid of ulama with other ulama, of other sciences? Right. So taqlid basically just means following qualified scholarship, right? In that sense, we all do that. Uh, anybody living in human society, we follow somebody else's lead when we are basically getting ourselves to the honor of death. In that sense, the ulama were also engaging in taqlid of different people. But there are levels of taqlid. So, for example, if I have no clue about how cars work, when I go to the mechanic, I have to do taqlid of the mechanic. I have no way of figuring out whether the mechanic is telling me the truth or whether he's playing with me, right? I just have to do taqlid of the mechanic. <clears throat> but there are certain other fields where I might not be an expert, but I know enough about the field to be able to judge whether this expert is a good enough expert or he's basically a sham, right? So when it comes to Islamic law and the uh, associated sciences, what you find is that uh, the great imams might not be an expert in those sciences, but they knew enough about those sciences to be able to figure out uh, which person they should be following or not, right? In the case of Imam Abu Hanifa, for example, and his committee of 40 people, as we have in some sources, that he had a committee of 40 people working with him, they were people who specialized in different fields. You had one person specializing in Arabic language, another person specializing in Hadith, and so on and so forth. And Imam Abu Hanifa himself wasn't like totally out of depth in these areas. He, he knew these areas pretty well. It's just that one of his students had specialized in one area and another had specialized in another area. So when you think of that, then yes, taqlid was there, but it was of a different order than the kind of taqlid you would expect from uh, somebody who has no clue about that area. And in any case, for a person to become a mujtahid, you have to have a good command of the Arabic language. So even if uh, you may not become an expert in Arabic language, the kind of command that is required to achieve to become mushtahid 
that would allow you to be really proficient in, in, in the issues pertaining to Arabic language. Which is why even today in um, in most madrasas and most traditional systems, the curriculum for Arabic is, is pretty extensive. Uh, in fact, in many madrasas, uh, they weed out the weak students through Arabic. But those students who cannot handle Arabic grammar, they basically uh, aren't able to stay in the system. And so only those who are able to master Arabic, they're able to go forward. <coughs> Does that make sense? Yeah. So these scholars, if they were relying on one particular reading of the Quran or one particular grammatical understanding of the Quran, when they were kind of deriving their law, um, did they have to stick for every other ruling also to this particular reading or this particular school of grammar or understanding of grammar? Or did they have the, the I guess, liberty to kind of pick and choose when they wanted to justify a ruling that they had? Right. So when we say uh, this reading or that reading or this school or that school, we're basically talking about the, the later period. In the early period, there was a lot of flux, right? And because of that flux, scholars also had a lot had a lot more freedom. But I think on the on on their part, they were trying to be consistent. It's just that we have uh, because they did not qualify their method for us. It's hard for us to verify that. So what we have now is scholars of later generations basically looking back and saying, taking the assumption that these scholars were consistent, and so all of their rulings uh, basically do not contradict one another. It was the same uh, consistency across the board, but it's a claim, and uh, to uh, and most people accept the claim uh, on face value. But if somebody has an objection to it, they will have to, to do a lot of work to prove that that was not the case. I know increasingly a lot of people have been claiming this that the the early imams were not consistent thinkers, that they uh, were much more flexible in, in adopting this ruling here and that ruling there. And this is basically a projection of later scholars on the past. But like I said, this is a huge claim. And uh, to to actually uh, test that claim requires a lot of research, which I don't think anybody has actually bothered to undertake. Okay. How is Islamic law advanced as science has advanced? That is to say, using science to evaluate certain aspects of what is you know, permissible or not permissible. Right, so uh, to a certain extent, Islamic law has evolved with science, especially as it pertains to questions of uh, medical questions uh, or questions of healthcare. So there are questions pertaining to najasa, to tahara, there are questions pertaining to uh, fasting, valid fasting, invalid fasting, and so on. And Islamic law has tried to basically incorporate uh, new knowledge that has emerged through the medical science. So that's one part of it. Uh, the other part where I think Islamic law sort of lagged behind uh, modern science, and I'm going to use science in, in a broad sense, uh, that has to do with social issues and economic issues, uh, and even political issues for that matter. What we notice is that uh, for the past at least two centuries, we have the rise of the nation state, right? And when the nation state emerges first in Europe and then it expands throughout the world, what nation state does is it starts looking and, uh, at society in a different way. There's sort of this godlike bird's eye view of society and this collection of data. And even though data science has become fashionable today, the collection of data has been going on for a very long time at the level of states. And so if you look at, at the global picture, what you find is states will plan for the whole of society, right? The states have uh, statistics telling us <coughs> what is the rate of marriage in society, what is the rate of divorce in society, 
what percentage of the population is making what amount of money, uh, what percentage of society is below the poverty line, and so on and so forth. And so based upon that information, nation states are able to make policies that affect all of society. Uh, many would also argue that nation states have also engaged in, uh, in social engineering through the laws that they have promulgated or through the policies that they have enacted. I think that's where there's a huge gap between Islamic law and uh, and modern knowledge. So I wouldn't say science, I would just say modern knowledge. That is to say knowledge that is available to nation states. Islamic law is not taking advantage of that knowledge. And the reason why I bring this up is because at the end of the day, when we look at Islamic law, Islamic law is competing with nation states. That's what Islamic law is doing, right? Worships, yeah, there's no competition there, but the moment you go beyond worships, you get into the domain of family law, you get into the domain of Islamic finance, Islamic economic transactions, Islamic politics. In all of those areas, Islamic law is basically coming face to face with the nation state. And the nation state has information about the current condition of the world in a much more detailed manner as opposed to the average Mufti. The average Mufti to this day is relying on anecdotal knowledge of society. Uh, they're relying on anecdotal knowledge of what people uh, do for a living, how much money they make, how do divorces happen, how do, uh, I mean, all, all range of those things. The nation state, on the other hand, has at its disposal these think tanks, it has at its disposal the academy, from which it gets detailed information about these issues, right? So I think on that front, Islamic law is sort of lagging behind. It does not, as a matter of principle, take all of these things into account. But before we take this statement too far, we have to also be fair and acknowledge that many muftis in today's world will acknowledge that. Not, maybe not in so many words, but will acknowledge the fact that they are not experts when it comes to particular issues. And so many muftis will rely on experts to give them information so that they can pass a fatwa. So for example, on the question of Islamic banking and finance, a lot of it, uh, whether it is permissible or not permissible, whether certain transactions that Islamic finance theorists have proposed, are they permissible or not? Many muftis will rely on banking experts. And those bankers will give information to these muftis and muftis will decide, will give a fatwa based upon that. But what we also find there is that muftis who are actually educated in banking and finance are able to pass a better fatwa than those who are merely relying on an expert. And so there appears to be this, this gap between those muftis who simply post Islamic banking and finance on theoretical reasons and those muftis who have actually bothered to study uh, banking and finance and economics and so on, and they're giving fatwas in favor of Islamic banking and finance, right? So that's where you can begin to see this gap emerging on the basis of the knowledge that the mufti possesses. I hope this sort of answers your question. Yeah. Um, okay. This next question is a bit long, so let me start with the gist okay. of the question and then kind of expand on it. How do we know that the companions did ijma on something? Now we spoke earlier about ijma and how the ijma of the consensus of the companions was considered evidence by later scholars. We also said that this consensus included all the companions. But even in their time, was this logistically possible? There were some situated in other areas, some who were from different tribes. And if this was logistically problem probable that all over a hundred thousand of them agreed upon some things. Why don't we find more agreement about other things um, for which we find a bit more, I guess, conflicting evidence? If they agreed upon the number of of, of raka'ah, 
Surely they could have also agreed upon the number of prayers. Right. So, again, it goes back to the question of what is Ijma, right? Is the Ijma uh, the consensus of scholars of the community or is it the consensus of all members of the community? So when it comes to the, the election of Sayyidina Abu Bakr as the Khalifa, uh, you could say that was Ijma of all members of the community. But when it comes to similarly on the question of basics of Islam, such as the number of prayers, the five prayers, or the, the rakahs of salah, on those issues, you again have consensus of the members of the Muslim community. Uh, but when it comes to other issues, uh, it, it seems more logical for us to not look for consensus of all Muslims of the time, but rather consensus of all the mujtahids among the Sahaba. And this is why the scholars, later scholars, have disagreed whether uh, ijma is. is uh, is defined by mujtahids or by all members of the community. And the the opinion seems to have been in the later period of these that of all the mujtahids of the community. But like I said earlier, uh, in, in the case of the book that Ibn Hazm wrote, Murat uh, al what he has done is it's very interesting because what he has done is he's basically looked at all of those issues in books of fiqh where scholars don't disagree, right? And he ends up calling it ijma. And that's another way of looking at it, that yes, they might not have explicitly stated that we all agree on this particular issue, but the fact that they all agree that lying is haram, that is ijma, right? If you think about it, <laughs> right? They all agree that that, uh, that certain types of sins are haram, that is also ijma, except that we already have that from the Quran, right? So so in that sense, ijma can, can be looked at as having played a huge role in the early period, I mean, even the transmission of the Quran, that is by Ijma, right? That is my Ijma, and that is a huge achievement, think about it. Yeah. So in that sense, uh, in that sense, Ijma did play a huge role. But again, we have to keep one thing in mind. These terminologies are terminologies that emerged later on. So what you have, it's not like Sayyidina Abu Bakr was looking around to, to, to somehow make Ijma take place. That's not what he was doing. It was later scholars who were looking back and said, okay, yes, this seems to be something that we can call Ijma. In other words, the concept was there, the label came later, right? And during the time of Sayyidina Abu Bakr, Sayyidina Umar, what they would do is they would have their council, and in that council, they would seek consensus. But they weren't calling it ijma in the technical sense, right? They were, what they were trying to do was, they were trying to run the Muslim community in a way where there was least disagreement. That's what they were trying to do. So that's a conceptual existence of a phenomenon. And later scholars come along and they say, well, this is something that we can call ijma, and these are, are the parameters through which we define ijma. Right, and when they engage in this process of defining ijma, then they disagree. Well, wait a second. In this process of ijma, should we consider all Muslims or should we only consider the Muslims, and so on? Right. So, so that's and and again, keep this in mind. Uh, while, while keeping this in mind, also keep in mind the other part of it, which is that Islam was transmitted through person-to-person teaching. Right. So all these Sahaba, whatever whoever they came in contact with, they were passed on whatever they knew of Islam to those people. Now, amongst these Sahaba, some Sahaba emerged as teachers, right? So we have stories of, for example, Sayyidina Ali being the teacher in Kufa, as well as Abdullah ibn Mas'ud. We have story of Ibn Abbas emerging as a teacher in, uh, in Mecca. We have the story of Abdullah ibn Umar emerging as a teacher in Madinah. So some teach, some Sahaba became known as Mujtahids. Other Sahaba became known as teachers, right? And because of those Mujtahids and teachers who often overlap, Islamic uh, teaching and practice was uh, spread to Muslim uh, through these areas, right? 
And so therefore, we don't have to go back and look for the 100,000 plus Sahaba to have agreed on something. What we need to look at is who were the main teachers and what were they transmitting to their students? And do they agree among each other or not, right? Okay. And kind of on the same note, we do have evidence of companions, uh, either through hadith or other um, um, accounts, that companions disagreed amongst themselves and they accepted that these disagreements were valid. I mean, this isn't just um, something that's projected onto that time by later scholars who had, you know, various types of, um, you know, uh, bits and pieces of evidence and they kind of just concluded that, hey, maybe different um, companions had different, you know, understandings and um, they just assumed that they all agreed upon it. But we actually have evidence of companions. Yeah, yeah. Of I mean, so again, uh, again, it becomes a historical question. What what part of the history of the early period is preserved, right? So a part of that history is preserved in the form of texts. So the early collections of hadith that are really deep here, like Musannaf ibn Abi Shaiba and Musannaf, uh, uh, I forget the other Musannaf of the other person. Uh, but anyway, Musannaf ibn Abi Shaiba and the other Musannaf, is, I think Sahani. <coughs> These two are, are really um, uh, huge collections of, uh, of early history. And then we also have the preservation of this history through the lived practice of the Sahaba, right? Through those teachers and their colleagues in those particular cities and garrison towns, the early history is preserved, right? So we have all of these detailed discussions about disagreements among the Sahaba. So for example, if you look at Sahih Bukhari, in the beginning of Sahih Bukhari, there is a disagreement between two Sahaba. I believe one is the Musa al-Ashari and another one is maybe Sayyidina Omar. And they're disagreeing on the question of the Yamam, right? So even on the question of the Yamam, which everybody now knows that it is valid, the Sahaba were disagreeing. And when you look at the detailed uh, hadith, what you realize is they were disagreeing on the, the policy impact of that. And one of the Sahaba who was denying the validity of, uh, of the Yamam was denying it because he felt people would misuse it. So he knew that the Yamam was permissible, but he felt that people would misuse it, right? But that's a question of how much of Islam the teaching should be transmitted to the general public. So. So we have all of these disagreements in different ways preserved in Islamic history. Uh, the question would be that do we have 100% of this history preserved? Of course not. Nobody preserved 100% of the history. They were busy making history. They were not trying to preserve it as such. What is preserved is what ended up being seen as important by someone, right? So whatever the students consider to be important, they preserve. And then whatever their students consider to be important, they preserve. And so in that sense, I think whatever is relevant has been preserved for us. And whatever has not been preserved was something that was not seen to be as reported. Okay. So we had mentioned earlier, and I know I should have plugged this question in uh, when we discussed it, but we had you had mentioned that later scholars modified the methodology of older scholars, correct? Yeah, yeah, certainly, yeah. So, like, on what basis did they did they do this? I mean, practically, what does it mean to have um, a new methodology than one centuries ago? Um, and on what basis did they innovate? Well, so so it depends. Like, um, I don't think there was a large scale overhaul of the system. It was more like bits and pieces, and that is the domain of fatwa, right? That you have a basic methodology that you uh, inherit from the imam of the school. But then as new cases emerge, as you interact with other schools around you, you start to, uh, and when you take their uh, ideas seriously, you start to make some modifications in your system, right? 
So in the case of, for example, in the case of the Shafi'i school, we have Imam Ghazali, Imam Munharma, and his teacher, Imam Jawaini. And then later on, uh, we have uh, other scholars in the school, such as Imam Al-Nawawi. With them, you find that certain fatwas change, right? And uh, fatwas change because they're basically not only applying the original methodology of their, uh, their Imam, but also taking into account new methodologies that have emerged around them. I'll give you an example of Imam al-Nabawi, right? So there's a basic principle in, in usul al-fiqh, in jurisprudence, which is that al-amr lil-wujud. That when you have the imperative command, that means it's an obligation, right? And if there's a reason for that, uh, for not taking it to mean an obligation, then you take it to mean something else. This is the basic principle, that imperative means obligation unless there's a reason for us to not take it to mean obligation. Now, there's a famous hadith of the Prophet ﷺ in which he commands Muslims to let their beards grow. And then he also commands Muslims to excessively trim their mustache, right? Two parts to the hadith, both have imperatives. One is the imperative command for letting your beards grow. The other is the imperative command for excessively trimming your mustache. <clears throat> now, in the Shafi school, Imam al-Shafi'i, he held the opinion that letting your beard grow was wajib uh, up to a fist length. And cutting it before it became first length was haram, right? But he was also of the opinion that excessive trimming your mustache is mustahab, not wajib. Imam when he comes along, when he's basically engaged in his sort of critique of the whole school, he analyzes this hadith and he says, how can it be that one in one imperative we take it to mean wajib, the other imperative we take it to mean mustahab, even though it's the same hadith? It's not like the context suddenly changed, right? It's the same hadith. So because of Imam Shafi, he then gave the fatwa that it was sunnah to let the beard grow up to a fist length, and it was makruh to trim the beard before it became fist length, right? But he also held that the uh, the uh, excessive trimming the mustache is mustahab. In the case of the Shafis, it doesn't cause a problem because mustahab and sunnah are basically uh, equivalents in the Shafi school, right? But this is a good example of somebody coming along later on in the same school, evaluating the fatwas of the original founder of the school using his own methodology, that is to say using the methodology of the Imam himself and reaching a different fatwa, right? So you have these kinds of cases occurring in each one of these schools. In some cases, the, the scholars might even give other fatwas based upon other factors that might have come to light. So for example, in the case of the, uh, of the Hanafi school, the, they held their position it is not permissible for a person to to receive salary for doing something which is an act of obedience, that is to say, which is an act of worship, right? So, for example, it is not permissible for a person to receive a salary for giving the adhan, for teaching the Quran, for leaving salah, right? But later scholars, they say, no, it is permissible. <laughs> and the reasoning is that if we do not allow this, then these particular uh, aspects of Islamic practice would basically... Uh, uh, would not flourish, right? People would not be uh, engaged in these because there's no money in it. They will not, uh, because the people are receiving their own livelihoods and stuff, so they will not engage in teaching the Quran. So we have to give salaries to the Quran teacher. But before the Hanafis made that choice, other schools had already declared that as their standard fatwa, right? So there's, there's a case here of the Hanafis learning from the example of non Hanafis and then eventually incorporating that into their own system. But while doing that, the fatwa may have changed. But the original ruling still stays in place, right? So this is a case of the system changing 
and yet not changing. Does that make sense? Somewhat. I mean, on what basis really are they saying that, you know, uh, if if we don't modify this aspect of our methodology, then this thing will happen. That is, you know, maybe people will stop teaching the Quran or people will stop giving Adhan because, you know, if there's no money right, in it, so. why do it? So, I mean, on what basis really? Because, I mean, it seems like a lot of times these modifications are, you know, they operate within a framework of, you know, what's allowed, what's not allowed. And yet there's higher, kind of higher, you know, um, um, ideas in play, like for, you know, God will preserve his religion. So, I mean, where does that come into play in all of this? Right, right. So, what, what is happening here is basically uh, a scholar is responding to the changed conditions on the ground. Right? The scholar is saying, well, Muslims have gone down in piety. Muslims have gone down in commitment to their religion. Uh, the, the Muslim elite is not supporting Islamic practices as much as they should. So, for example, in the early period, the, the Muslim state <coughs> would have stipends for all those engaged in Islamic practices, right? Somebody was a teacher, somebody was leading salah, and so on. They would be receiving a stipend from the uh, from the Bayt al-Mal, from the Islamic treasury, right? So the Bayt al-Mal was basically supporting them while they were carrying out these acts of obedience or on behalf of the whole community. So in that sense, the, the scholars are responding to what they feel is changed conditions on the ground. And this is what I was saying earlier as well. That in today's world, and so and so those scholars, when they responded to those change conditions, they responded to those change conditions based upon their own knowledge of those change conditions. That is to say, their anecdotal knowledge of those change conditions. What is different today is that we human beings that now have access to not just anecdotal information, but we have access to scientific information about change conditions of the world, right? <clears throat> and that's where there's a gap. But uh, but in terms of Responding to change conditions on the ground, that's that's basically enduring feature of, of Islamic law. In the very early period, until today, uh, scholars of Islamic law have recognized that when conditions change, so for example, uh, when uh, for a particular ruling, there is certain assumption of how society is. If the society is not like that, conditions have changed, so the hukam, the ruling, would also change. So for example, in the case of Sayyidina Umar, he basically suspended the, the had for, for theft. In the epitome of famine and starvation, right? That's a clear-cut example of somebody responding to the change conditions on the ground. It's not. It's not that theft became okay now. Theft was still haram. It's just that the punishment was was removed because people were in desperate condition, right? The key question that that we have today is, how do we know the extent to which conditions have changed on the ground? And I think that is where there's a huge disconnect between the general public and the ulama. The ulama might have a certain understanding of society around them, whereas the general public might have a very different understanding of society around them. <clears throat> because the general public might come from different demographics, right? And one demographic might be more vocal than the other demographic. So what you end up having is the vocal part of that general public, which belongs to a particular demographic, sees the world a certain way. And the ulama, who may belong to a different demographic, see the world a different way, right? But what is happening is on both sides, it's anecdotal knowledge of the world. Both sides are not engaging in scientific study of the world, which in today's world is possible. I think that's where the, the problem lies. <coughs> Does that make sense? Yeah. And I should probably ask another submitted question. Um, mm -hmm. Can one methodology, and you, you definitely touched upon this earlier, but I should ask again. Mm -hmm. Can one methodology result in 
several conclusions when analyzing the same set of data? It's possible. It's possible. Like I said, I mean, within Islamic law, there's, there's a great deal of flexibility and even of multiplicity of options. Uh, so you can have a ruling that is that would be defined as a fatwa, and you could also have a ruling that would be defined as taqwa. That something is, is required and certain other things are not required, but desirable, right? So, for example, uh, let's consider the example of Salatul Janazah, right? The, the prayer on the dead. Uh, it is a fault kifaya, right? What that means is, if some people in the community to pray on the dead, that is sufficient. The whole community has discharged its obligation. But obviously, it is highly desirable for some people to actually do it, right? So, if, for example, if 10 people have prayed the funeral prayer, others have not prayed, the obligation of the community has been discharged. But if the 11th person were to pray, that is even better, right? In that sense, you already have that flexibility in, the, in that command, right? And it's, it, this is just one example. There are many other cases of this. Depending on the particular example, we could have other cases as well. A good example would be the case of, uh, let's say, of uh, studying Islamic law in detail, right? That again is for kifaya, and uh, everybody's not required to do it. But uh, the more people that do it, the better it is for the society, right? We increase the overall Islamic literacy of society, so that's even better. But again, we cannot make that an obligation. That would be something that is only desirable. So when you look at the, the, the interplay between fatwa and taqwa, that's where you find a whole range of uh, these kinds of uh, multiplicity of rulings. Okay. Um, so what is ijtihad and are the doors of ijtihad truly closed? And if someone wants to do ijtihad, do they have to, I guess, function also in a traditional framework? Right. So ijtihad is basically exerting yourself to find a ruling for something where there is no ruling uh, existing from before, right? Ishtihad is performed in areas where something new has come up. <clears throat> if something has occurred before, somebody must have already pronounced the judgment on it. So to engage in ishtihad on which things have already uh, been decided, it seems like we are nothing to do, right? We I'm sorry, have, sorry, can you repeat uh, that? So, so there are a number of issues on which scholars have already passed their judgment, right? So for a person to engage in ishtihad in those issues, it seems unnecessary. Right. So for example, uh, what is the, the number of sunnahs to be prayed before Zohar Salah, right? That has already been discussed between the scholars and they already have different camps, right? So for somebody to come along today and say, well, I'm going to do istihad and find out the exact proper number of, of sunnahs to be prayed before Zohar Salah. <coughs> you can do it, <coughs> but seems unnecessary because you already have two camps. Uh, a better uh, option in that case would be to decide which one of those two camps is, is right or wrong. But then again, that is also a form of istihad. And seems again unnecessary. I would say ishtihad, the proper domain of ishtihad in today's world is issues that have not been discussed earlier, or issues which have been discussed earlier, but which had depended on the assumption that the society was a certain way, and now the society has changed completely. On those issues, ishtihad should take place. And in that sense, I think ishtihad doors are always open, they're never closed. I mean, even the, the expression the doors of ishtihad are, are, are closed. This is an expression that is more Orientalist than originating in the Islamic tradition. It came from the Orientalists, and many Muslims have sort of internalized it. But there's a very good article by, by Wahid Hallah discussing this question. He, he shows in, in, in a convincing manner that this is not indigenous to the Islamic tradition. What we do find in the case of the Islamic tradition is 
the scholars begin to discourage from the 5th, 6th Islamic century onwards. Uh, they start to discourage people from trying to create a new madhab. That's what happens. So in that sense, ishtihad, which would be such groundbreaking ishtihad that you would have a new madhab altogether, that is something which has been strongly discouraged by ulama throughout the centuries since that time. But ishtihad in the form of fatwa giving, ishtihad in the form of deriving rulings for new issues, that has to take place. And that's the key thing, right? That's one of the arguments that, that Wal Halaq and other scholars have made. That ishtihad never really ended, but ishtihad just changed its name from being called ishtihad to fatwa. And so in that sense, every mufti in, in, in the world is engaged in some ishtihad to a certain extent, right? Even the question of uh, of which ruling, pre-existing ruling, is to be applied to a particular case today, that is a form of ishtihad. It's just that it's at a lower level. But the touch subject for many ulama is the question of ishtihad, which purports to create a new system altogether. And that's where it becomes problematic. And the reason for it being problematic is because creating a new system is such a huge task that uh, it's very hard to imagine somebody would be qualified to do it. And so in that sense, many people are reluctant to accept when somebody makes the claim that they're going to come up with a new method altogether or when they raise the banner of ishtihad in an absolute sense. Many people are circumspect that this guy is basically just a phony who's trying to, to gain attention or he has suffers from delusions. It's very hard to, to meet the conditions uh, to become a full-fledged user. And those conditions are, um, I mean, who so develop? Yeah, so those conditions are, again, it's... It's like in the, in the modern academy, how do things work, right? In the modern academy, it's all by convention. That is to say, the community of scholars, it decides what is acceptable, what is not acceptable, right? So in today's world, for example, if you are seeking a tenure-track position in any university, you cannot do that without, without a PhD, right? Now, of course, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala did not tell us that you have to have a PhD to become a professor, right? It is something that the community of scholars agreed on, right? Uh, but if you go back 50 years, uh, you will find people with MAs uh, are actually professors, right? So th th these are things that change over time, and these are things that uh, community of scholars decide on. So this is an example from the modern uh, Western Academy. But you can ex extend this, this example to the Islamic community of scholars as well. The community of scholars, they look at their situation, and they basically end up arriving at a sort of an informal consensus that, yeah, in today's world, if you want to be uh, talking about these issues, you have to have these kinds of training. So, for example, they will say, if you want to engage in ishtihad, then you have to have a solid command of the Qur'an, you have to know the nazikh and the mansukh in the Qur'an, <coughs> that is to say the abrogated and the unabrogated verses of the Qur'an. You have to have a, a solid understanding of the of the Arabic language. You have to have a good command of the, the hadith sciences. You have to know usul al-fiqh. You have to know uh, the detailed rulings of, of different scholars on the subject. If you think about it, basically what they're asking you to do is to, to master is that you have Maktaba Shamala in your head, right? So Maktaba Shamala is, is basically an encyclopedic collection of all of these things, right? And so uh, to be able to have that in sort of on your fingertips so that when you are faced with an issue, it immediately comes to your mind, okay, all of these other things are also relevant to this issue. So I have to take this into account, right? So in that sense, if you have such a mastery of, of at this encyclopedic level, if you have such a huge mastery, then you can come up with a new system. But if you don't have that kind of mastery, which is, like I said, it's, it's hard to achieve, <coughs> Maktaba Shamla is, is a good tool to, to be able to do research. But to have that much information fresh on your fingertips, it becomes difficult. 
I mean, already if you look back in the time of Ibn Taymiyyah in the uh, 8th Islamic century, what you find is Ibn Taymiyyah has had a phenomenal memory, right? He had encyclopedic knowledge, right? So he was able to sort of make, sort of behave like a mustahid. But everybody else around him, they uh, were not comfortable with what he was doing. And one of the reasons why they were not comfortable with, with what he was doing was because he was challenging the existing schools that already uh, were in place. Now, when the debates would take place, if Adenia would basically win the debate uh, on the spot because he was, uh, he had much more, he had much more, um, what should I say? <clears throat> he had a much larger stock of memory, right? So he was able to come up with examples on the spot, whereas his opponents were unable to respond to him in a family fashion. But when they would go back and they would sit down and do it, analyze the issue systematically, then they would be able to respond to him. So that's the difference between somebody who has encyclopedic memory and who's able to have that sort of grasp in a timely fashion versus somebody who is unable to do that. So the example of Ibn Taymiyyah is just, it just illustrates the kind of skills you need to be able to come up with a, a new system. So Ibn Taymiyyah is, is basically behaving like a mustad, and even though he's not accepted by his contemporaries, he, he's basically like a mustad. So, so that in, in today's world, the Salafis take Ibn Taymiyyah like, like their mustad, right? For everything they are citing Ibn Taymiyyah. But the question is, how many people like Ibn Taymiyyah do we have in the world, right? So that, that's the key question. <clears throat> if you have somebody like Ibn Taymiyyah, then yeah, sure, let them set up their own madhab and let them uh, put it together. But there's a big drawback there, and this is why the, the people, the contemporaries of Ibn Taymiyyah were opposing him. And that big issue is, in the case of the pre-existing madhabs, it's not just the imam who put together the madhab. Every generation of scholars in each madhab basically contributed to the madhab. And one of the contributions is by verifying the rulings of the earlier imams. So I gave you the example of Imam al-Nabawi, right? Imam al-Nabawi comes along and he basically verifies the whole madhab to make sure that everything is up to date. So that generational contribution to each madhab is hard to come by in the case of somebody who starts a new madhab today. But even in the case of Ibn Taymiyyah who started his, his particular approach to Islamic law, it was not uh, basically, uh, he didn't find it. There weren't that many people in the next generations who served that system until today's world. So because of that, even though the four schools don't like it, Salafis have effectively become a new school, right? If you think about it. And they have become a new school because they have Ibn Taymiyyah and Naqayyim in the early period. And then they have this whole range of scholars in the modern period who basically contribute to that school. They are basically helping with tweaking that school. And now you have that school emerging as a sort of a matter. In that sense, yes, a new school can emerge even today as well. If you have somebody of, of such caliber as Ibn Taymiyyah, and you have these hordes of followers who are willing to contribute to that matter, verify each thing, and basically update it in accordance with, with new emerging issues, then you can have the emergence of a new school. But like I said, it's, it's a Herculean task, and uh, I don't really see much benefit to it. What we really need to be doing is, <clears throat> I would say, collaboration at the level of senior most ulama uh, on issues that are new. That is where most collaboration needs to be done. And that's where new work needs to be done. Okay. And again, I'm... For us to spend, basically, to, to summarize, for us to spend time and energy on doing what others have already done, even though we have at least now five different systems before us, right? We have the four standard swimming schools, and we have the fifth Salafi school, right? <laughs> you have these five schools. They give you enough examples of, of, uh, of previous issues. Now what we need is the rulings for new issues. So I think that's where the Ishtihad needs to be done, and that's where we should take advantage of the uh, of each one of these five schools. Okay. 
And this next question, um, it it's I guess this is probably an appropriate place to ask this question, and it kind of uh, you know circles back to something we were discussing earlier. Now you had right. mentioned that new methodologies pose an issue in terms of their probability. That is, it's less likely that they are correct. But on what right. basis are we saying this if we don't quite know the mind of God? We have all these other principles kept in mind when developing law and law changes. And for all we know, what we do today may not have been sanctioned by earlier scholars. How then can we say that someone, even if they exerted themselves and built a new framework of understanding, is statistically less likely to please God than someone who's utilizing another methodology? Well, so, so it goes back to the question of the qualifications of the Mashnah, right? So we discussed earlier the, the scholarly qualifications of the Mashnah. Yeah, so we discussed earlier about how the, the scholarly qualifications of a Mashnah, right? We talked about the various sciences that a person has to master to be able to, to act as a Mashnah. The other part of that is the, the part of Taqwa, right? So when you look for somebody with both of these issues, Number one, they have to have this encyclopedic mastery of so many Islamic sciences on the one hand. And secondly, a very high level of taqwa, we find that Muslims are wanting in both of these domains. That's one part. The other part is the motive. Why do you want to create a new method, right? And I think what we realize there is that for many people who have this motivation to create a new method, they're basically saying, well, the people who created the pre-existing methods, they got things wrong. Right. What you're saying is, I'm not satisfied with the pre-existing frameworks, right? And you're basically questioning, in other words, the legitimacy of any one of those frameworks. The question then is, why are you questioning that legitimacy, right? And most likely what you will find there is that somebody who questions the legitimacy of pre-existing frameworks is because we are products of our own time. And so we find problematic some of the, uh, the rulings that have come up from those frameworks. Right, <coughs> and so for, for me, the way I look at it, I see that somebody who is has full mastery of Islamic of all the Islamic sciences, somebody who's also pious, will most likely would not be questioning those issues. And if he still questions those those issues, then that most likely is a result of that person being solidly affected, heavily affected by the current context. And so, therefore, I feel that the probability of error will increase because that taqwa will have been compromised because that person is too heavily affected by the modern context. In other words, he already has certain rulings in mind, he just wants to achieve those rulings. I know I'm basically questioning that person's sincerity, <coughs> but that is where, where it comes down to. Okay. And I guess kind of moving on um, mm -hmm. as we conclude this Q&A session, uh, there's a number of questions on Islamic scholarship. And so I'm just going to ask them in turn. Mm -hmm. What was the role of Islamic scholarship in the past? How has it developed? What administrative setups allowed for the flourishing of a scholarly class? And I know you had mentioned some information about a scholarly class earlier. Right. So when it comes to scholarship, there are basically two parts to it. One is the prophetic role, which is that of Bashir and Nabi. Right. If you look at the Prophet described in the Quran, it's described as Bashir and Nabi. Bashir is somebody who brings good news, and Nadir is somebody who brings a warning. So that is the job that the ulama are supposed to do. They're supposed to give good news to the people and they're also supposed to warn people. That is to say, they are supposed to encourage the general public to engage in practices 
to engage to accept those beliefs, which will bring them closer to salvation, which will bring them to paradise and pleasure of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And they also have to warn them against the things that will take them away from the pleasure of Allah and things that will lead them to hellfire. So that is the primary purpose of the alim in one sense, because that is the job that the Prophet had, uh, <coughs> that the Prophet was given by, the, by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The other part of the, the, the scholar is uh, development of Islamic scholarship. And that is something that the Prophet himself did not engage in, because in, in his time, he had revelation coming to him, and a bit of ishtihad that he was himself engaged in, again, that was a group by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So the Prophet did not directly engage in this kind of work. This is a result of the expansion of the Muslim community. This is a result of the increasing complexity of Muslim society. This is the result of changing circumstances and conditions. So I think in today's world, what we're seeing is the ulama, by and large, are engaging in the twin jobs of the Prophet, Rashid and Nabi. They're engaging in those, those twin tasks. When it comes to scholarship, that is to say, uh, getting out research, <clears throat> Uh, producing fatwas for new, for new issues and so on and so forth. I'm sorry, what was That's the second part you said? The second part is the question of, uh, of producing scholarship, right? Mm -hmm. Of doing research. And research-based scholarship, that's where there's a, there's a lot of weakness in our in our system today. But again, the Onamar said engaged in it. And uh, <coughs> by and large, throughout the Muslim world, to varying degrees, Onamar engaged in different forms of research. It's just that I think there's a lot more that needs to be done. That's all. And, and that uh, that was your question, right? Yeah, and what were the administrative kind of setups that allowed for... Yeah, yeah. So, so what happens in the case of uh, pre-modern Islamic history, what we find is that on the one hand, the general Muslim public was very supportive of Allah. The general Muslim public had a very strong uh, regard for Islamic learning. They had a strong regard for those who taught Islamic learning and those who wrote about it. And so the general public was very supportive of ulama. In other words, you had an informal mechanism for supporting ulama, and the ulama could basically dedicate themselves to studying and teaching and to composing new works. What we find in today's world is that that system has sort of collapsed. Also, we find in the pre-modern period that apart from the informal support that ulama received from, uh, from the general public, there was also support coming from state structures. That is to say, at that time period, you would have Nobility, Muslim nobility, Muslim rulers, setting up madrasas, setting up endowments, setting giving stipends to ulama, and so on. So the general public and the Muslim elite both were engaged in supporting ulama, and you had a system which basically allowed uh, the Muslim ulama to engage in studying and teaching full time. You also had in the pre-modern period a state structure where there was a huge scope for ulama to be employed, either as uh, khatibs for private prayers, or as imams for general salah, or as muftis attached to courts, or as judges in the court system itself. So because of all of these things, there was a strong desire on the part of many Muslims to become ulama. Some of them chose to become ulama because they wanted to please Allah. Some of them chose to become ulama because becoming an alim was one of the most prestigious careers a person could possible. So because of all of these social and political factors, the ulama class flourished in the pre-modern period. In the modern period, what we have is the legal system is no longer Islamic. So the what system? No I'm sorry? The legal system. Oh. The legal system is no longer Islamic, so therefore, it's by and large not Islamic, so therefore there are there is no scope for ulama to be employed in the legal system. Neither as judges, nor as lawyers. Uh, in some countries, 
the ulama do have still have the scope of being employed as as masjid, uh, as imams in masjids, as khatibs. That is still there. In some countries, there's limited support for ulama to be employed as teachers, but that is very limited. And as far as the general public is concerned, the support for ulama has decreased considerably. It is still there, uh, but it has decreased considerably. And I think that's definitely evident in the questions that are going to be asked right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so next, what were the requirements of a scholar in the past and what are they today? What made a scholar in the past and I mean, what, what, what's considered a scholar today or who is? I mean, like I said, like I said earlier, there are two parts to it. One part is the, the direct uh, inheritance of the prophet, which is to behave as a bashir and that is to say you're acting as a preacher. When I say a preacher, it is basically a level above uh, what you find in Tablighi Jamaat, for example. And Tablighi Jamaat is? Right. So uh, the Tablighi Jamaat, the, the average Muslim is also uh, a preacher in the Tablighi Jamaat, right? That's the basic level. We all can become preachers in that sense that we're all calling people towards believing in one God and praying five salahs and fasting and so on and so forth. So that is the very basic level of preaching. I'm sorry, what is Tablighi Jamaat? So I'm talking about Tablighi Jamaat as a basic level of preaching. Yeah. I, well, what is the Tablighi right. Jamaat? Just for uh, listeners oh, who may not be familiar. Oh, what is the Tablighi Jamaat? Okay, yeah, yeah. The Tablighi Jamaat is the, the worldwide organization of preachers. It originated in India and right now is operation, operating in, in most parts of the Muslim world. Primarily affiliated with the South Asian diaspora and with the South Asian community, but also uh, there are other uh, ethnicities involved in it. Uh, I once visited the Tablighi Makkas in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. It's a huge place uh, run by the local Malays. I know a lot of the Arabs are also part of the Tablighi Jamaat. And uh, of course, they're, they're operating in every part of the, of the world right now. So Tablighi Jamaat, basically what it does is, is it recruits uh, the general public uh, to come into the system, learn the basics of the deen, and uh, then go on and call others to learn the basics of deen. So that's what they're doing. They're doing basic preaching, right? The job of the scholar is beyond that. The job of the scholar is to engage in basic preaching, but also detailed preaching. The job of scholar is to also uh, <coughs> give detailed rulings when required. So, for example, the imams of masjids, that's what they're doing, right? Not only are they leading the community in, in, uh, in carrying out certain obligations, they're also engaged in preaching to the community and basically trying to raise the level of commitment and the level of devotion of the community. And so the kind of knowledge that is needed for uh, leading a community and bringing them closer to Allah and bringing them closer uh, to the Prophet in bringing them, in making them stronger in their commitment and devotion to Islamic practices. For that, you need knowledge more than what a person in Tajik Jamaat would need, right? So that's one part of being an alim. An alim has to engage in that kind of preaching. He has to be qualified to. He may or may not engage in it, but he has to be qualified to engage in that kind of preaching. Okay. And so, I mean, in terms of quali being qualified, I guess, like, what, 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 how were you qualified as a scholar in the past in terms so basically, of. Basically, yeah. So, so what, what emerged early on was that you learn certain subjects within Islamic sciences, right? <clears throat> so you have to know quite a bit of Islamic theology. Excuse me. You have to know quite a bit of Islamic theology. You have to know quite a bit of Islamic law. You have to know quite a bit of Islamic spirituality. These are the basic things that you have to know. And to be able to master these things, then there are certain things that are called ancillary sciences. You have to know those as well. So you have to know quite a bit of Arabic both in its, its grammar, its usage, its rhetoric, and so on and so forth. <clears throat> There's a whole range of things that can fall under Arabic language and its sciences. Then you also, in, in, in uh, the medieval period, you also have the emergence of, of logic, 
Aristotelian logic as a as a means as, as a tool for learning the advanced sciences. We end up having three main areas of sciences. There are these, uh, the, uh, what you can call the, the core Islamic sciences, theology, law, spirituality, uh, and within law there's also jurisprudence, and uh, and then we also have the, the second category of Arabic language and its sciences, and the third category of ancillary sciences. So this is what was used in the pre-modern period. <clears throat> in the modern period, we again have the same thing. Scholars are required to master the Islamic sciences, and to do that, they also have to have some mastery of the Arabic sciences, and we also have to have some mastery of the ancillary sciences. The biggest change I would say between the pre-modern and the modern period is those ancillary sciences, besides Arabic, uh, they tended to be quite a few in the pre-modern period, and that portion has shrunk quite a bit in today's world. That's going to change it. But the Islamic sciences are still the same, the Arabic sciences are still the same. The particular texts used in each, each of those categories might have changed over time, but for the most part, I would say since the, uh, since the 12th, 13th century, a lot of these texts are also quite stable. In that sense, there's a lot of continuity between pre-modern and modern uh, training of a, of a scholar. But like I said earlier, for an alim, he has two main tasks. One was the task of what I would call preaching at a higher level, right? That's one task. And that is directly the inheritance of the Prophet, And I think on that front, uh, the ulama are quite successful and... Uh, Whatever complaints people have are, are minor compared to what they're actually executing. Okay. The other part of the the other part of the the Alan's job is that of research scholarship. And by its very nature, research scholarship is something that every Alan cannot undertake because everybody is not cut out for that, right? Uh, and so, even in the past, not everybody was engaged in that kind of research scholarship. Only some ulama were engaged in that. What is what has changed over time is that in the pre-modern period, uh, many scholars would seek they were basically intellectuals, so they would not limit themselves to their training, but rather they would go on and learn other sciences as well, so that they could incorporate that into their uh, learning and into their research. What we're seeing today is that the number of Muslim scholars who are engaged in that kind of intellectual activity has decreased, especially considering the kinds of challenges we face today. So, for example, when it comes to research scholarship, we don't find that many Muslim scholars engaged in history of the Quran, right? <clears throat> You'll find many Muslim scholars talking, giving tafsir of the Qur'an, uh, giving their khutbahs, their bayans on the basis of Qur'an. So they're engaging in and using the Qur'an. But research scholarship on the history of the Qur'an, very few Muslim scholars are engaged in it. When it comes to hadith, uh, there are a lot more. And so hadith sciences are pretty solid on that. On that front, Muslim, uh, Muslims as a whole, at the global level, are really solid. They have... Uh, there are so many ulama engaged in it, and their work is basically their experts, undisputed experts in that field. When it comes to history of the Quran, when it comes to history of Islamic law, that's where we have challenges. That uh, the ulama today are not not that many of them are engaged in this in this research. And on the other hand, in the Western Academy, a lot more people are engaged in those types of research. So that's where there's a sort of a clash between the Western Academy and the uh, Muslim scholarship. Okay. Um, now, if piety is a condition of true scholarship, how do we evaluate the piety of scholars? And are scholars to be held at a higher standard than the rest of the people? The answer to the second question is yes. Um, the answer to the first question, how is piety evaluatable, it is simple. Piety is evaluated on the basis of do's and don'ts of religion. So the same thing that the, the scholar has been preaching, we basically held them, hold them to it. 
So whatever the scholar has been preaching to us, the general public basically hold him to that if he has been telling us no fornication, he has been telling us no looking at the opposite sex without need, he has been telling us about all of these things that we should do or should not do, and he himself is basically lax in those things, that means the scholar is lacking in piety. Right? <coughs> well, that's how we determine piety. We define, determining piety does not entail uh, spying on people. It does not entail that. What it does entail is that whatever is visible to us, based upon that, we judge whether the person is pious or not. And like I said, uh, for the general public, the easy yardstick is whatever the scholar himself has been preaching, we hold him to it. That's all. Okay. And, I mean, even, I guess, the layperson, when he's talking to a scholar and he's deciding, you know, I, I want to follow this scholar, I mean, the scholar obviously has more knowledge and he can, you know, provide some right. type of evidence for his behavior. Right. If it is a bit more crude or a bit more, you know, right. like rougher than right. Right. what the person is used to, whereas the person cannot. I mean, he's basically right. understanding the scholar according to what other scholars right. have told right. him about what ideal scholarship is. So keeping that in mind, I mean, like, what should the, the, the average layperson look for? I guess I, your your advice is is absolutely valid. I mean, whatever the scholar preaches, you should take that from him. But beyond that, yeah. Well, so a, a good solution for this problem is that instead of limiting yourself to one scholar, have at least one alternative source of information. So, for example, if you pray Jummah regularly in one masjid, that's fine. But once in a while, go to some other masjid as well, so that you get uh, the uh, another imam preaching to you, and you get a sense of what is he talking about, right? So that you develop end up having developing end up having uh, alternative sources of information. I've noticed in many cases where people end up being fooled by uh, by uh, sham scholars or end up being fooled by sham sheikhs. That happens when the sheikh is the only source of information for them, the only source of Islamic learning for, for them. And so the sheikh is basically preaching them the basic stuff, but when it comes to himself, he's able to give up these sort of nuances, which justifies his behavior, right? <clears throat> and so my advice in those cases always is, you were supposed to have a second source of knowledge. But I'm going only one person as everything, for everything is, is problematic because what that means is that that person can abuse you whenever he or she wants to. And, and, and I want to point out that this is different than, you know, what they call as fatwa shopping or um, madhab hopping. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is something else. That is something else. Uh, when you basically are fatwa shopping or madhab hopping, that's basically... You're saying, I'm not going to listen to this scholar because uh, I don't like his fatwa. I'm going to find somebody who actually gives yeah. fatwa that I like. That is to my liking. That is following your desires because you're not seeking to please Allah. You're following, you're just trying to find somebody who basically is going to back you up. That's it. So that's something else. Yeah. But when in the, the, what I was suggesting was that on the question of determining piety, on the question of figuring out whether this person is, is reliable or not, uh, you should have an alternative source of Islamic learning, somebody who can give you an alternative view on, on those same issues so that you can see, okay, wait a second, this particular issue that's, that I see with this person, which he was able to justify, actually does not make much sense because I have an alternative source who gave me the other perspective on this issue. And it also goes back to the question of raising the overall literacy of the general public. One of the reasons why uh, many ulama uh, that people have a problem with are able to abuse them is because the general public is absolutely ignorant of on Islamic issues. The general public is willing to spend 12 years in, high, uh, in basic schooling, is willing to spend another four years in college degrees, but is unwilling to invest any time in uh, in learning Islam. And for many people, uh, their Islamic learning is limited to that of a fifth grade or a sixth grader. It does not go beyond that. It is too simplistic, too basic, and too crude. 
And so I think they, they need to work on that. And again, this is something where the, uh, the ulama and the general public have to work together. Both sides have to recognize that yes, everybody does not have to become an alim, but everybody should try to become an educated Muslim. If you were living in the past, where a lot of people were living in circumstances where you had, you know, you're basically just a shepherd uh, herding your goats on the mountain or whatever, then it, it's a different story. But in today's world, we live in a country, for example, in the U.S., every citizen in this country is required to have 12 years of schooling, right? If you are willing to give up 12 years of your life to engage pursuing that basic schooling, then the least you can do is give up at least one year of life to pursue Islamic learning. That, that's how I see it. And if, if the general public starts doing that, what you will see is the general public is basically more informed, is better educated, and can also hold the ulama to account. If some alim is, is deviating from the straight path, if some alim is playing around, if some alim is abusing his authority, the, the general public will be knowledgeable enough to hold them to account. Right? Yeah. Um, do scholars speak for God? Where do they derive their authority? If they are the ones interpreting the verses, would it not make more sense for them to interpret it in their favor? Well, this is why the, we have the condition of piety, right? <clears throat> if somebody is of, of loose moral character, if somebody is, is prone to lying, then of course, yeah, he will do these things. But if somebody is known to be pious, then the chances of that person committing, uh, engaging in lying and, and engaging in, in abuse is minimal. So that's why the condition of piety is there. And the authority of the ulama is derived from the fact that they are trained in Islamic sciences. It's just like the authority of a professor in a, of a scholar in, in the secular academy. Their authority is derived from the fact that they are trained. And secondly, they have been recognized as such by their peers. Same thing with ulama. Uh, number one is training. And number two is recognition by your fellow fellow ulama. If they recognize you as an alim, then you're an alim. Right? If somebody has the training, but he's recognized as somebody who is a deviant, somebody who has made a lot of uh, weird uh, decisions, somebody who was basically on the fringe when it comes to upholding Islamic thought and practice, then of course the, the probability of such a person being wrong is very high, and it's best for the general public to stay away from such a person. How do you okay. respond to the following? Let's face it, scholars make a bigger deal about the profession than it actually is, and add to it more importance than there actually is. Is it reasonable for them to expect the community to pay them for their own scholarly interests, especially if they're in obscure matters? Well, so it goes back to the question of does the community value Islamic learning or not? If the community values Islamic learning, then yeah, uh, they will support the scholars. And I would say, in, uh, I personally consider scholarship to be extremely important. If you want to live uh, on earth as a as a beautiful servant of Allah, if you want to seek salvation in the hereafter, if you want the Muslim community to continue as a Muslim community, then yes, scholars need to be supported and they need to be uh, given the respect that they deserve. Now, it is entirely possible that somebody is not qualified enough and yet makes a big deal about being a scholar and uh, is basically trying to fool the people. That is possible. But in general, in general terms, uh, scholars have a very high rank for the simple reason that they have devoted their lives to studying the Quran and the Hadith and to other aspects of Islamic learning. And they have a high rank because they've devoted their lives to, to the teaching to others, right? And so it is upon the community to support them. But think, think of it this way. The community supports uh, the government and so many other parts of, of our society through taxes because we consider them to be core functions that everybody needs. 
So we pay taxes, which then fund the police. We pay taxes, which then fund the, uh, the fire department. We pay taxes, that funds the city government, that funds the state government, that funds the federal government, right? We pay all of those taxes because we recognize that that is needed for the society to function effectively. Otherwise, it would be free for all. Same thing with, with Islamic learning. If we are committed Muslims, if we believe in, in God and his prophet, if you believe in salvation and the hereafter, if you want to achieve that, and if you want to continue as a community, as a community of believers, then we will invest in scholars. Uh, but at, at, at the level of specific scholars, of course, it depends. If somebody is basically uh, was a bad student in, in Madrasa, right? And now all that he's doing is basically just claiming to be a scholar and wants to be respected. And of course, that guy is a charlatan. Okay. But, uh, but th those are exceptions, right? You cannot just give a blanket statement and say, well, every mother's graduate is stupid and they're all lying and they're all just seeking to aggrandize themselves. I think that that's, that's, too, that's a bit much. That would, that's a bit much. One, like I said earlier, one thing that you can actually do is if the general community begins to improve their Islamic literacy, what they would recognize then is that, yes, scholars are providing these excellent services, but those other things, <clears throat> they're not providing us. And then we should basically urge them to engage in those things. And that is where the domain of research scholarship comes in. And so in the question they asked about obscure matters, I think it depends on what the obscure matter is. What, what seems to be an obscure matter to, to some people might actually turn out to be very important later on. And this is where the, we can actually learn from the secular academy. In the secular academy, uh, it's the scholars themselves who decide what kind of research is to be supported, what kind of research is not to be supported. The donors don't decide that, right? Or at least theoretically, they're not supposed to decide that. Actually, they might at times have some influence, <clears throat> but in general, it's the scholars who decide what kind of research is is uh, is important, what is not. So I would say the same thing for Islamic scholarship. Uh, the Muslim community should support the uh, the scholars, and the scholarly community they should decide among themselves what kind of research is to be supported, what kind of research is to be discouraged. Okay. okay. Now, um, <clears throat> scholars today repeatedly say that scholarship today is not like scholarship was in the past scholars today are not like scholars were in the past in terms of their general awareness and piety given the fact that scholars readily admit to this fact do they deserve what they are asking for in terms of endowments and community platform yes and no <clears throat> So on this question, again, it, it depends on the specific individual or individuals involved, right? Like I said, some people might be charlatans. They were bad students in Madrasa, they were bad students in the university, and now they've basically made uh, this institution, this masjid or whatever, as a means of living. So of course, such people should not be supported. <clears throat> so this is a, a case of where the community has to judge whether they trust the scholar enough to support them or not, right? But in general, uh, yeah, the scholars need to be supported. The scholars have to be uh, given respect. And whatever issues we have about the quality of scholarship, we also have to keep in mind the general public was not the way it is today, right? If the scholars have gone down in piety, the scholars have gone down in knowledge, the general public has gone down in, in both of those things as well. If you look back 200 years ago, the average Muslim was much more educated than us, right? The average Muslim was much more pious than us. And consequently, the ulama were at a higher level as, than us as well. Uh, it is true that what some of the uh, what some uh, madrasa graduates have in terms of their training is is barely comparable to what the general public had in in the past. But the general public today is, is so ignorant that in that sense, these scholars still have a higher rank than the general public, right? 
So I think in, in that sense, we have to still support the scholars. But if the general public is better educated in the foundations of Islam, has better understanding of what Islamic scholarship is, I think they'll be in a better position to, to hold ulama to account and they'll be in a better position to judge between who is a good scholar and who is just a shine. Okay. And the scholarly community, they should decide among themselves what kind of research is to be supported, what kind of research is to be discouraged. Are there scholars preaching Islam that is urging people to God or are they urging people to go back to tradition that is framework that is not normally that is normally understood as being an accepted path to God is there a difference between scholars preaching to Islam and towards a particular way of doing Islam how sincere are scholars when they push people away from other scholars if in fact the goal is God or from more personal forms of worship instead towards themselves when the views of other scholars go against their own? So it, it depends. So in, in general, the scholars, when they're preaching Islam, part of Islam is that tradition, right? Because Islam reached us in 21st century America through a certain tradition, right? That was a tradition of people and institutions and texts and so on. So when somebody is preaching Islam, they're also indirectly or directly at times preaching that tradition as well. And that's okay. Because the both are, the two are not different, right? The tradition is a means to approach God. For example, you learn how to pray the Hanafi way or the Shafi way, the Maliki way or the Hanbali way or the Salafi way. These are different traditions, right? And so you're basically learning uh, to, to please God through this tradition. So in that sense, there is no problem there. <clears throat> the question of pushing people from one set of scholars to another set of scholars, it depends. If the this particular scholar in question sincerely believes that the other scholars are insincere, or that the other scholars have reached a conclusion that is in violation of Islam and therefore people should be warned against it, then yeah, of course, they not only should they do it, not only are they, uh, not only do they have the right to, to warn people against them, it's actually their obligation. Uh, but if they do not actually believe that and they're doing it for the sake of basically uh, sort of like a, like a turf war, then it's a different story altogether, right? Then they are not justified in doing it and they're answerable to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for, for engaging in this thing. What, one of the issues that we do have today is the issue of some ulama jumping to conclusions about other ulama's intentions. I think that's where there is a problem. Uh, but again, we cannot uh, immediately reach a conclusion about a person's intentions, right? Whether it be the intention of the other group of scholars or the intention of this scholar who's pushing us away from that group, right? So intentions is something that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the final judge for those things. We just cannot know them for a fact. But if you feel, if as the general public you feel that this scholar is basically just being insincere, then fine, you don't have to listen to him. You can just go with the other scholar, that's okay. Okay, and kind of, I guess, a final question um, in this topic of scholarship. According to you, what is the ideal scholar in today's world? What should he or she know? Right, so for me, I would say the ideal scholar in today's world is somebody who's uh, who's thoroughly grounded in the traditional Islamic sciences. That means, like I said earlier, those three sets of sciences, the core Islamic sciences, Arabic sciences, and the Islamic sciences. But on top of that, I think the modern scholar today should also be well-grounded in modern humanities and social sciences. And I mentioned that especially social sciences, more so than humanities, but especially, but at least some humanities. Well, it depends how you define history. For some people, history is uh, social sciences. For the most part, it is history. It is humanity. <clears throat> I 
I think those things are very important. Modern scholars, especially uh, coming from South Asia, many South Asian scholars tend to lack in modern humanities and social sciences. I think those are very important. Uh, and it goes back to what I, had, I was talking about earlier, that uh, to have a good understanding of the society you live in, to have a good understanding of the modern condition about which a scholar is supposed to give a fatwa, the scholar has to have some study of humanities and social sciences. Without study of those things, they cannot fully understand the modern condition. They cannot fully understand what different Muslim demographics are facing. And the few ulama who have that understanding, their fatwas actually uh, tell you that they, they are qualified to, to give fatwas on those issues. A good example is that of Muslim Taqi Uthmani. Muslim stands out as a scholar who might come from one demographic, but is exposed to all kinds of demographics. Even though he may not employ a scientific method in understanding what the modern condition is, nevertheless, his anecdotal experience, experience is such that he's able to be exposed to so many different demographics that's able to see, okay, what do different Muslims need? Moreover, because of his training in economics and finance, he's also able to decide what the modern fatwa uh, would be on those issues. I think that's where Muslim, modern scholars need to work on. If, if there's any alim listening to this, I would recommend that ulama should start focusing on specializing in particular areas. So one scholar, for example, could specialize in psychology, one scholar could specialize in sociology, one could specialize in politics, one could specialize in economics or finance and so on and so forth. Because our traditional system does not make us experts in those issues. For those things, you have to gain modern training. So that's what I think. Okay. And with that, I would like to conclude um, the podcast. Once again, I want to thank Mona Amir Bashir for giving so much time to help record this podcast. Very insightful conversations and truly an expert in the field. I also would like to thank all the people who asked questions. These are all very interesting. I think that most of them were answered. Thank you so much and see you next time. Thank you so much.